When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are we moving from warfare being a human pursuit to being a machine pursuit? It's here that I start to worry about the future of warfare. Drone technology has absolutely transformed the way that war is waged. They've been embraced by the military in part because they promise less destruction, more precision and better intelligence on the battlefield. And they've been key in every recent conflict, including, of course, the current war in Ukraine. But drones themselves have a much, much longer history than you might imagine. Only a handful of years after the Wright brothers successfully nailed the first powered flight, we see the first uncrewed aerial systems being developed for use in the First World War. Today, I am joined by History Hit's very own James Rogers, host of our sister podcast, Warfare, to take us through the hundred-year history of military drones and how they shape conflicts today. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of of inventions from History Hit. Welcome, James Rogers, to the show. It's lovely to have you here. James Rogers, military historian. You're a military historian? I can stick with military historian. Yeah, that works for me. You're more than a military historian, but that's kind of maybe where I think of you. Hey, listen, drones. I mean, I should say as we're recording this that we are currently in day 14 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so I guess sort of military things and airstrikes are, are slightly, unfortunately, in the, the sort of public consciousness, as it were. As when, you think, when you talk about drones, I guess you're talking about them in that sort of military perspective. When I talk about drones, I tend to think about filming because we use drones for cameras and that kind of stuff. So when we use the word drone, just frame it for us. Give us a bit of context of what we're talking about. Oh, how long have we got? I mean, that alone. We've got 20 minutes. That that (laughs) definitional question is hard enough to start with. It is. Because it's really funny, actually, the word drone, because it can mean so many different things, doesn't it? Yeah, it can. Some people say, I drone on, Dallas. You certainly don't drone on. (laughs) Well, if you do drone on, you drone on in an interesting and enlightening and That's nice very, way. very kind of you. But when it, <laughs> when it comes down to, to the drones I talk about, I suppose we, we define them in terms of being medium altitude, long endurance systems. These are the big military drones that when you think of something like a, a predator drone or a reaper drone, these are the things that we think of. 
And when it comes down to the current crisis in Ukraine and the Russian invasion there, it's those sort of systems that we continue to think about. So the Ukrainian military were able to purchase a number of TB2 drones, the Bayraktir TB2, which is a, a type of large uh, medium-altitude, long-endurance drone that is supplied by the, the Turkish, who were able to create their own entire locally manufactured drone industry that they now sell around the world. So they've been used relatively frequently in the conflict, but the drones that you're talking about are also increasingly becoming a, a key part of, of warfare, especially urban warfare, which is the character of the current Ukrainian conflict. If we look down, one of the, some of the things that I've heard recently is that the drone stores in Kiev have donated all of their hundreds of their drone systems to the resistance, to the ability to fight back. And so that drone that you use as a, as a camera to help film some amazing scenes in the TV shows you do are also incredibly useful for providing surveillance, reconnaissance and, and feedback to those trying to coordinate defence of, of major cities. And presumably journalists as well. I mean, when we're watching the news, we see... I mean, I'm conscious of thinking, okay, that's a drone shot because we're flying above and, you know, they're not using a helicopter, which is what we might have used in the olden days. They're using a drone. So by drone, I mean, they're sort of with four propellers on, as opposed to the military drone. Just describe the military drone, what it would actually look like for our viewers. So you gave it a number, a TB, what was so it? So yeah, that's, that's a TB2, which is a... What does that look like? So that looks like a a small aircraft. Think of like your two-seater Cessna or something like that. Something that you can go up into the sky that you perhaps learn to fly in. It's around that sort of size and can fly at those sort of altitudes. You can get much bigger drones than that as well. We don't have to just think of them as small systems. You know, something like the US Global Hawk is, is twice the size of that. It can fly at high altitudes. We're talking 50, 60,000 feet and it can survey vast areas, entire cities all at once based on the software, like the Gorgon Stair and the hardware. Uh, these are surveillance um, capabilities that are plugged in to the drone system. But yes, when it comes down to the, the smaller quadrocopters, which are those ones with like the four rotors on, they're the sort of systems that we're seeing perhaps deployed more frequently on the ground by journalists uh, to try and help us understand the scale of the conflict and the sort of damage that we're seeing during the war. So, well, okay, well, let's talk about those sort of military drones first. I mean, the, presumably the idea is this is a way of delivering munitions without, you know, losing a pilot. I mean, is, is that it? I mean, tell us how a drone strike works. Presumably it has to be controllable. It's different from a rocket, say, or a missile, which presumably just kind of goes in one direction and then just lands. This is something that's steerable, like a big remote control plane with a button that you can drop something on. Is that right? Or does the drone crash? I think I'm not quite sure what happens. Hey, this is the world we live in now, actually, where we have a number of different types of drones. Some, okay, okay. <laughs> some which we call loitering munitions. And so Crikey. that's like a missile that you can steer towards a target. And some people call them kamikaze drones or, or suicide drones. And they're most frequently used by an array of non-state terrorist actors, uh, of which around 60 plus different non-state groups now have drones and many weaponized drone capabilities but if we're going back to kind of what the original purpose of the drone was then it is most definitely that it's about trying to reduce the risk to the life of the 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 user's military so let's go back to the point of which i identify when the drone was was invented 
This is back to the later years of the First World War, which is so surprising to me when I look back through We've this We've only history. just invented aeroplanes. I mean, I know. 1903 to 19... Did, I mean, God, God, I mean, we did use aeroplanes, obviously, in the First World War, but for reconnaissance and other things, but we certainly didn't have drones, did we? Well, mm. so... Well, 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 well. Tell me. So... If we look at the First World War, then then what do we think of? We think of a conflict that is defined by bloody, brutal, entrenched warfare and almost unbelievable numbers of casualties. It's also defined by the parties that were involved. So the United States, for example, was a country that was never meant to get involved in the First World War. The 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary, had stated that the US would stay out of the affairs of the brutal European old world. America was the new world. It was something different. But by the time it got to 1916, 1917, the tide was turning. And so Woodrow Wilson committed American troops at great cost to American lives. We're talking about 200,000, 300,000 American casualties. And there were protests on the streets of the United States. I remember a couple of years ago going deep into the New York Historical Society, going into those archives and pulling out these photos and these documents that were showing the fact that the American people were furious at what they called a lost generation of American troops who had been sacrificed on the fields of Europe in these bloody, muddy battles. And so they wanted to make sure that this wouldn't happen again. And there was a, a, a young fledgling part of the US Army called the US Army Air Service that was toying around with aeroplanes and different types of airborne technologies. Like you say, they were really young at this point. A lot of their pilots had been taught how to fly by the Wright brothers. We're only just over a decade since that point, since that first takeoff of heavier-than-air flight. But already they're thinking about ways in which they can deploy this more in the future in terms of warfare. And so... The American air power thinkers at this time, people like Edgar S. Gorell, who's one of the early air power strategists in the US military, he states that, well, if the public don't want us to have these cost-heavy entrenched wars on the ground, what if we can go over and not through the enemy? What if we can target their industrial sites, their cities? We can take away their ability to fight. We can make it so they can't produce bullets and they can't have them in their guns. They can't produce rubber for tyres. They can't um, refine their oil and make fuel. And so when we do finally meet them on the battlefield, they won't have the ability to fight back. You won't be caught in those deep entrenched wars where you're just pounding against each other. Instead, you just walk through the enemy. So that need for precision came as a, as a sort of reaction just to the sheer cost of life in, in the First World War. Yeah, absolutely. One of the motivations for that. Yeah, they, they even called it precision bombing doctrine. So this idea of precision strike, pinpoint precision, they're all words that are used back in mm. 1917. Gosh, that's really interesting. Presumably it wasn't. I'm just trying to imagine this type of aircraft that were flying in the First World War. Presumably it wasn't that precise. Well. I mean, it's not that precise now. No, that was the big downfall of it. So what they did was once they started getting political support for this and the politicians realised the public were quite amenable to the idea of air power over their best, their brightest, their youngest, their their brothers, their sons, their fathers being sent into battle and instead you could rely on air power. Well, then they started to get a lot of money to try and manufacture these things. And so some of the key air power thinkers in the US started working with industry, inventors like Charles Kettering, who was an inventor, an engineer, a businessman, the holder of 186 patents. He was the 
head researcher of General Motors in the 1920s, and he's credited with inventing things like the electrical starting motor and perhaps more controversially, leaded gasoline. But what he came up with at this point was the first drone, I would call it. It was called the Kettering Bug, and I suppose you could describe it as an aerial torpedo. It very much looked like the drones that we have today. It was non-piloted. It was set on rails. It was probably the size of maybe a small biplane, not dissimilar to the size of things like the the Bayraktar TB2 that I mentioned earlier. And it had a a Sperry gyroscope, one of the earliest gyroscopes to keep it level. Mm -hmm. And it had a rotor-based motor that you could turn the rotor the amount of times that you wanted it to be released in the air, much like... I suppose, winding up an elastic band, if you ever made one of those as a kid with a little, a little rotor blade. Many um, times. <laughs> exactly. Many times I did that. And it would be sent off these rails into the air, and it would fly directly as the crow flies, with this Sperry gyroscope keeping it level. Mm-hmm. And the rotor would be set for the uh, amount of turns that you needed to go, and thus the amount of distance you wanted it to travel. So let's say that the enemy munitions factory was 100 miles away, then you'd turn it enough time so it could travel exactly to that point of 100 miles as the crow flies, and then the motor would stop midair. It would pull in a a chock that would mean that the wings drop off, and what people like Charles Kettering said is that it would swoop down on its prey like a falcon. It did not do that, Dallas. Well, this is what I'm thinking. It's because if the munitions factory is 100 miles away and you wind up your propeller, but then a gust of wind slightly blows it off course or it stalls or something happens, it's just not going to hit the factory, is it? It's going to hit something maybe near the factory. It's going to get blown off course. Some would say it was worse than useless. (laughs) No, exactly. This is called the Kettering Bug. Did it ever see active service, the Kettering Bug, or was it purely a concept? So the the First World War came to an end before it was used in active service, but it was tested an awful lot. And then the idea just didn't die. They kept on trying to make this work better and better and better through the interwar years. Now, The funding varied during the interwar years, but as the Second World War started to approach and as it was became clear that the US would be drawn into that, the funding increased dramatically to try and make the Kettering bug work. But it really didn't work and it was something that had to be pushed to one side. But the technologies that were involved in that, the ability to try and achieve a precision strike and the strategies to go over and not through the enemy, well, they were foundational to American air power during the Second World War. And they started investing in a whole array of new technologies that would try and make this air power precision strike achievable in war with varying levels of success. Well, what's the difference? I mean, why that rather than, I mean, I think about things like the V1, which I guess is it's sort of a drone. I mean, it's not a, it's not a remote control thing. It's a rocket-powered thing. But is that, do we call that a drone? Like- I think for me, probably as we start to look at more modern definitions of drones, it is that ability to to control it and to steer it in the air. But yeah. you can definitely say it is an early unmanned system, an early uncrewed system, because it had, again, that similar capability to the aerial torpedo, to the Kettering bug, to be sent up into the air and then towards the target and would cut out whilst over the top of that target. Now, when you're trying to hit entire cities, as you were trying to do with V1s and V2s, then you're going to have a far larger chance of, of success, aren't you? Because you need to just just hit the city. You're not really trying to, to do much else apart from get vengeance, cause terror, and destroy the morale of the population that you're bombing. 
When it came down to American precision bombing, it was more about a strategic success. They were trying to hit specific targets whilst, and this was something that was written into the doctrine, whilst avoiding the enemy populace and their livelihoods. There was this notion that through precision, you could be proportionate and discriminate and more moral and ethical in terms of warfare. Now, that's quite interesting that this moral thing comes in. It's like, actually, you know, in the theatre of war, we're going to be the ones more moral because our weapons only kill a certain amount of people. And it's a theme that continues over a hundred <laughs> years of American warfare. Oh my God, it really does. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So the Second World War, okay, so the Germans, of course, V1s, V2, we're familiar with that. 
Tell us what new technologies in terms of drones, as you would call them, were the Allies using in terms of uncrewed aerial vehicles? Well, one of the ones that sticks... A bit more precision. Yeah. Well, in terms of precision, there was uh, something invented by Carl Norden, who was a, a bombsite inventor, and he created what I would call the first analogue computer system that could take input of things like altitude and wind speed, and it would be in the cockpit with the bombardiers and the pilots in something like you know B-17 bombers during the Second World War, and they would input that information for it to tell them exactly when they can release their bombs so that they could strike those munition sites or so on and so forth, and then take them out of service so that they were going over and not through the enemy. Again, that worked with varying levels of success, but was more with these crewed piloted aircraft. When it came down to what we would think more now as remotely controlled systems and drones, well, we have to look to the projects that were experimented with by Joe Kennedy Jr. Now, Joe Kennedy Jr. was the older brother of the future president of the United States, JFK. And he could have gone home at an earlier stage in the war, in around 1943. He was an officer in the US Navy, but he instead decided to stay on in the military and to start experimenting with early drone technologies. So what they did was they took old battered-up B-17s and newer B-20 Liberator bombers, they took them down to a base in Norfolk, just outside London, a place called RAF Fursfield, and they took every bit of extra weight they could out of these planes. They then put inside them early video cameras and remote control systems, and then in the back of the plane, they filled them with a very volatile explosive called Torpex. Now, the idea here was to take off from Norfolk, to get into the sky at a cruising altitude, then to hand over the control of this plane to a, a mothership further back called a C-12 mothership. And by mothership, all I mean is a much larger plane with pilots in. Who could then thinking of a UFO? Sorry, as far as I know, there were no aliens involved. No, in there were no process. no aliens. No, I don't I don't Damn. believe so. But you know, I, I, so that, hang on, let me just on. recap yep. here. So so that that so you got this old plane yep. filled with torpex, which is nasty stuff. Yep. You've got a video camera, which well, presumably like a film camera. It can't be a video. Yep. Okay, film camera. But there's someone flying it at this at this uh, point. How does it take off? And how does it take off? Yeah, from it takes the, off with a pilot and a co-pilot. They then hand control over to a another pilot in another plane that can take over the remote control of this. Okay, so there is a, some kind of remote control system. This is the first That's sort of right. remote control yeah. system. Okay, Even back then in the 1940s. And then, in theory at least, the pilot and the co-pilot jump out and they parachute down and get picked up a little bit later on. The plane then flies towards key sites in the south of France. One of the ones they wanted to try and target was the V3 weapon site. So the V3 is the super gun that would have been firing at London. Uh, and that was in a place called Mimiek. And their, their plan was to be able to remote control this drone with its packed full of potent explosives with precision into these heavily reinforced V weapon sites so that they could take it out. Because what increased precision means in strike is increased lethality and increased damage. When you don't have precision, you have to drop hundreds, if not thousands of bombs over an area just in order to, to make sure you hit the target at least once. So this was the experimentation with these early drone systems. Now the trouble is, is that during uh, the testing for this, Joe Kennedy Jr. went up. Again, they did lots of tests with these, but on one fateful day... He didn't manage to get out in time. The torpex explodes and he was he was evaporated in, in, in midair. 
And so the mantle at this point is then handed down to a, uh, a younger, more sickly, but still a war hero, JFK. Uh, and his father makes sure that he gets to power. His father, of course, is Joe Kennedy Sr., who was US ambassador. I had no idea. What an amazing story. I had no idea that that was a thing. When they'd bailed out these pilots and the, and the plane was being remote controlled from a mothership, how far away was the mothership? So they're flying over occupied France and you, they want to sort of hit this, the, the, v, what, the V3 V3-sarcher. super gun. What happened to the mothership? I mean, is that like really close by or is it how far away it's is it? It's close by in terms of its distance trailing behind, mm. but it's not close by in terms of its altitude if you get what I mean. So it's flying much, much, much higher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes it far, far harder for enemy flak to take out the, the, the crude plane system. Yeah. And so the Americans at this point were trying something called daylight precision bombing. So they were still, with their crude aircraft, they were desperately trying to make sure they hit these targets. And to do that, they decided not to fly at night. They decided to fly low altitude and they decided to fly in daylight to try and use their Norden bomb site to hit targets. It was almost suicidal. The amount of pilots they lost was incredible. And so when it came to trying to attack these heavily defended sites, you could have a plane flying at high altitude, so it's harder to hit. And then you could have the uncrewed plane, the drone, flying at much lower altitudes because it mattered less if it was hit. And so here's where you get that first deployment of drones in battle, really. It seems like a crazy idea. It seems like it's not going to be that precise because of the, you know, the remote controlness of it is going to be a little bit dodgy. You've got putting pilots at risk. Why not just try and drop a bomb better? I, I don't know. It just seems like an awful lot of, you know, the technology clearly isn't quite right enough to do what is wanted to do. This didn't take off in the Second World War, did it, as a concept? I mean, how many of these proto-drone strikes were there? Again, we're talking about handfuls as opposed to hundreds. But they were used in the Pacific theatre and they were used in the European theatre. And again, they laid the foundations for what was to come next in the future. Yeah. And so they knew that they needed a way to try and make it more precise and more reliable. And here's where they started to experiment with laser-guided bombs, which would then be used in places like Vietnam. And they would start to experiment with drone systems like the lightning bug that was used in Vietnam as well to try and increase the productivity, the accuracy, and the reliability of, of crude bomber systems. So these are the early innovations that really pave the way for what we have today. The first time I consciously remember seeing, you know, a drone strike, it must have been the first Gulf War, which was the first, from my own point of view, the first really sort of televised war. And I remember those CNN black and white footage of a crosshair over a particular building and seeing that building being blown up and going, oh my goodness, that was properly precise. Was that the first time we'd seen like drones as we know them now to be used in conflict? Well, so that was the pioneer drone. And what that was actually used for was to be sent over the top of Saddam's troops as they occupied the Kuwaiti desert and to pinpoint their position where they were. The drone would then fly back to one of the US ships that were firing off cruise missiles and it would then be processed and used to use the intelligence to try and move the, the guns or the missiles to make it so that they were more precise and would hit the target. So here, you actually had a separation of the drone from 
the missile. You needed the drone in the air, and then you would come back, process it, and then you'd send the missile off. And the cruise missile was particularly good, of course, the Tomahawk, because it was something that could be guided far more accurately. And so that's where you get these kind of images of crosshairs and, and missiles exploding. It's a precision missile at this point. And it was here, and this is what I find quite fascinating, was that Saddam's troops knew that as soon as they saw the drone, they knew that that meant certain death because the drone would be able to pinpoint precise, pick them out, and that meant that precision destruction was on its way. And so it was in this conflict, Dallas, that for the first time in human history, you had human troops trying to surrender to the robots in the sky. It was the first time a human tried to surrender to a drone. That's really interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about how these drones actually work? Am I right in thinking that you have pilots who are in another in america flying you know, almost sort of like a video game flying these drones in wherever the conflict is yeah so there are again it, it, as we move through to what i now call the second drone age where we have over a hundred state actors that have drones and this 60 plus non-state actors there are many ways you can fly a drone but when we talk about the more traditional systems the predators the reapers the global hawks then they are controlled from thousands of kilometers away from the zone of conflict. So one of the key bases is Creech Air Force Base in the Nevada desert, just outside of Las Vegas, about 70 kilometers or so outside of it. And this is staffed. It's near Area 51 for the flying saucer bus. There you, there you go. <laughs> motherships and motherships all over the place. Exactly. Sorry, enough about flying saucers. So you've got these these drone pilots are in this base in Nevada. Yeah, and then you have another set of drone pilots in theatre, in the zone of conflict, but far fewer of them. And so they're in a small... Um, you know, think of a container that you put on the back of a ship. You're basically creating a drone control base inside one of these containers, something very similar to it, and you're placing it in somewhere like Ain al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, where there's a drone takeoff and landing airstrip, and they will take off, these operatives in the zone of conflict will take the drone off into the sky, and then they'll hand control over to the operatives over in the US, who will then take on the bulk of the mission, where they'll be able to patrol the skies for 30, 40 hours or something in different shifts before the drone has to come back round and land. And there are sensor operators, drone pilots, there are lawyers in the rooms, there are commanders. You have up to seven people who are controlling one drone at a time and taking very seriously these decisions of life and death as they monitor people for days, if not weeks, in what we call targeted killing, where you pick out high-value targets and you, in essence, take them off the battlefield. It's such a weird concept. I mean, is there a sense of, you know, if you're one of these drone pilots having to pull the trigger that you are... Because it's not real, it's like you're watching it on a video game. You're kind of desensitized to the whole. You know what I would say. The whole event. I think that's something that's been definitely publicized uh, quite often. This, you know, PlayStation Xbox mentality, and in some cases, they even have drone systems that are controlled by gaming controls because that's something that you've got. You know, a lot of young people who are going in the military who they know what they know how to use. So it, it's a kind of optimized form of control system now. I've interviewed many, many, many drone pilots over the last 10 years. And, and what I can say to you is that 99% of the time, they are taking these decisions very seriously and understand the grave consequences of their actions. Because there is a certain intimacy that comes with watching a target for days, weeks, months. Watching someone pick up their kids from school, making dinner, moving their grandparents about. You're watching their day-to-day -day lives to try and gather evidence 
and show that they are planning an imminent attack. Because if you can prove they're planning an imminent attack, then you can take a strike with what we call preemptive self-defense, which is the kind of legal gymnastics of trying to justify killing people in a war zone. And so when you've been watching that person time and time and time again, and then you have to take that decision to kill them, then that is uh, an incredibly emotional and, and like I say, quite an intimate uh, practice. When was the last time in war that you were able to, with no doubt, know that you are the person who has gone in and killed that person? Um, because usually, if you think about you know, 20th century warfare, you're firing guns off into the distance, you're dropping bombs from crude bomber aircraft, and you're not seeing the consequences of what is happening. This is a, a very clear link in ever more high-definition video of what you're doing on the battlefield. Drones, as well as the big sort of military drones, are the ones that we've been talking about, that sort of nations and countries and armies own. Presumably, smaller drones that you can buy on the internet or whatever are, are going to fall into the hands of terrorists and others and do all kinds of damage now you can do with small drones. You can shut down airports. I remember Gatwick Airport a couple of years ago was completely shut down because... What happened? Someone was flying a drone and it's enough to close down an entire airport. It seems to be you could do a heck of a lot of damage with these things. Yeah, I was um, actually involved in part of the investigation into that. And I mean, I can safely say that there has still been no confirmed proof that there was even a drone in the sky in the first place. The trouble is, is that as soon as there's a drone spotted, the police will send up their drones. And then you had tens of drone sightings, which could well have just been the police drone that had been sent up to track down the original drone. <laughs> okay, that's a, uh, that's so it creates absolute carnage and chaos. But what we are seeing is most definitely a spread of commercial drone systems. As they get ever more advanced, they have ever-increased payload capacities, they can fly further. You can even couple up multiple drones and fly them in a rudimentary swarm, all controlled by one device. And... These things are really useful for commercial purposes, of course. Things like, you know, look at agricultural drones. You can you can spray chemicals over vast swathes of land. Well, you know, you take some of those drones and you don't really need to change them too much to make them pretty difficult and deadly on the battlefield. And that and that's what we're seeing happening. I mean, if we look back to 2015, this was one that really alerted me to it, was when after... Uh, the Japanese government had actually agreed to start reopening Japan's nuclear power plants after the 2011 Fukushima earthquake had taken out one of their nuclear power stations and caused that, that untold amount of damage. Well, a Japanese environmental activist who actually described themselves as a Japanese environmental terrorist called Misty Yamamoto took a drone that he'd bought off the internet, painted it black so that you could cover up all the lights that were on it, then got radioactive material from down the Fukushima prefecture, took it back to his apartment, put it in a container, tied it to the bottom of this drone, went to the Japanese Prime Minister's residence in the dead of night, flew it in darkness to the Japanese Prime Minister's roof, landed it there where it sat radiating radioactive Crikey. material for two weeks without anybody noticing. And... Did he tell them? Did he say, oh, by the way, I've planted a drone with some radioactive material? Well, he actually got very, he got very annoyed because no one had noticed. And if you're, <laughs> if you're a terrorist... That's really, that, that's the one thing you well, don't exactly. If you're a terrorist, your point is to spread terror for political purposes. Yeah. And so he actually started to ready up a second drone to do it all over again. But it was at this point, and he was writing on forums, online, it was this point that the drone was found and he was picked up. But, you know, if you excuse the pun, I mean, this was the point where a lot of us were started to look up and see the risks of drones. And it wasn't long before these were used en masse 
by ISIS uh, during the war from 2016 onwards. Well, so drones for terrorist purposes, that's obviously a worry. I've got to say, though, we stuck a drone on Mars this year, which is pretty cool. We've got like a little remote control ingenuity thing. And I'm like, wow, we can actually control drones from on another planet now. That's pretty... Drones in space, yeah. Drones in space we have now. I wonder as well, presumably the the next bit of technology that's going to change everything is is autonomy. The fact that drones being able to do things on their own. We talk. I've been talking a lot about or reading a lot about Eva tolls as well, electric, vertical, and takeoff types of like bigger drones that will carry people and in an autonomous way. So which eventually will be pilotless. Are we going to see sort of pilotless military drones where? You know, you'll have autonomous algorithms that will be able to sort of make decisions, or is that kind of dystopian Terminator silliness? No, I think you most certainly will. It's hard to control the spread of and innovation of technology during times of supreme emergency. Yeah, that's what I worry about. Yeah, one of the things that is already being experimented with drones is this ability to couple multiple drones to one ground control station. So you know I mentioned that you've got maybe at this point in time seven people controlling one drone in the sky. There's a chain of command in decision making to make sure it's all done properly. Well, the next stage I see is probably where you have one person controlling seven drones, let's say. And you've already got the technology to be able to do this. The new Sky Guardians, which are like the latest version of the Predator, they have the ability to be teamed up with other drones And they can also autonomously take off and land. So you don't need to have that small deployment of a ground control station in theatre. And that means that you have even less troops at risk, Uh, although you'll probably still have engineers and maintenance folk there. So we're getting to a point where we can already have one person controlling seven drones in the sky, right? Now, they can fly around autonomously. They can fly in loops. um, They can pick out targets. And then they can alert the drone operator to those targets that they, they're going to take out. And then the drone operator can pick up drone number four and say it's seen a target and approve that. Now, what I'm thinking in terms of next steps of this is how long will it be before, instead of one person controlling seven drones, you'll have one person controlling a hundred drones that are all around the world. They are truly a force multiplier. You know, if we're on a peer-on-peer conflict and World War Three, then you'll have drones all around the world. And then these drones themselves could have an algorithm inside them that has a preset target signature. So when they see a target, they take the strike as quickly as possible because time is of the essence and you need to take that time-sensitive strike. The drone will then send a receipt back to the pilot and say, well, this is what I've done. Was it right? And at what point here are we degrading the elements of meaningful human control? Are we moving from warfare being a human pursuit to being a machine pursuit? It's here that I start to worry about the future of warfare. It's really, really complicated. The other thing I've just been worrying about as you've been speaking is whoever comes up with the names for these things. Like, Who comes up with the name Reaper and Predator? Do we know who's responsible for <laughs> oh, that? I'd like to meet there's, a, there's a long history of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Is the... Well, I don't know. I think about the sort of first atom bombs and they were called like the Fat Man and things. They were sort of rather sort of silly names. They weren't sort of called Reaper. Well, you've got to think of the time in which um, these drones are developed. You know, technologies are social constructions. They are designed and made in reaction to societal wants and needs of a time. And if you're looking at a predator or a reaper uh, during the global war on terror, then, you know, you're most certainly seeing that revenge 
is on the cards, much like the, the V1s True. and V2s being vengeance weapons. Vengeance weapon, yes, no, exactly. But I hadn't thought of Do you of know that. what the uh, the British call their versions of the Predator and the Reaper? No, what no. We have a we have a very different name. These are designated uh, actually it will be moving forwards with the latest Sky Guardian, to be more precise, which is the latest version of the Predator Reaper. That's a nerdy point to Sky make. Sky Guardians, it's a bit it's a bit more civilized Sky Guardian. Well, Guardians. Sky Guardian is what the Americans call it. We call it protector. Because we protect people. Sounds like, a, sounds like a condom. Well, I'll let you discuss that with them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because we protect people with our drones, you see. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can look into the, uh, the semantics of that claim. There is an interesting paper to be written about the naming of weapons. There you go. Hey, listen, thank you so much, James, for joining us. That was fascinating. So we can take the invention of the drone basically back to the beginnings of flight almost. The Kettering Bug, circa 1915, 16, 17. brilliant thank you very very much for joining us and uh, listen good luck with your podcast too and come on again and talk about um, well I'm going to have to school up on the names of weapon systems aren't I and how they're made yeah I think so I think that would be an interesting episode actually thank you very much thanks so much Dallas thanks so much for listening and if you want more you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes get cutting edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week every week for free enjoy A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.